Hello and welcome to the podcast for Christ Community Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. This is a message given on Sunday morning, September 25th, 2022, by Tom Job from the book of Romans. A bunch of the New Testament is really made up of letters that different people wrote, and most of them are letters that, like the really first, like super... A missionary, the Apostle Paul wrote to different people. So I just thought like every week, just take one of those and say, what is the letter to the Colossians about? What is the letter of First Thessalonians about? Like just in one, what is it about? So I wanted to read to you because, okay, so this comes from, so today we're going to talk about um, what is the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans about? And it says in chapter 12, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because this is true worship or what it um, what it really. Well, it sometimes it says it's spiritual worship. The Greek word is the word logikos, where we get the word logical. It just makes sense. Lord Jesus, help us to understand why it just makes sense for us to give ourselves completely and totally to you Um, because it super does. We love you in your precious name. Amen. So I was reading this article the other day and it was about like how people like how people teach animals to do tricks and stuff in movies or like kind of act in movies and the different like which are the most difficult animals and the the um, in Groundhog Day, when that groundhog was actually dri- driving that truck, um, it turned around and it bit Bill Murray on the finger, and he had to get like three stitches and rabies shots, and they had to get a different groundhog. But this one guy said, porcupines are actually incredibly easy to train. He said, I thought they would be like beavers who are particularly not good, but he said, they're really amazing. You don't want to pet them you know, after they do something awesome, but porcupines are good. Um, cats are the worst. He said, Cat, they just don't care really what you're trying to get them to do, but um, that, so the, um, in um, Harry Potter, those Harry Potter, those were actually owls. You know, those owls that were flying everywhere, they were like super trained owls. And the, the, in, the, in the movie Babe, it's about apparently a pig that could talk and stuff. They used 48 pigs for that, like, because there was no like one pig that could kind of get the whole thing down. So um, I just, I didn't know pigs looked so much like each other, but apparently they do that you can't even tell. But they gave them, like there's a part where the pigs would talk, they would give them um, peanut butter. So, and that's what would make them, they were trying to get off the roof of their mouth, you know, and that's why that would make them look like they were talking. But Toto made more money per week than the munchkins made, which I don't think, I don't think that's right. But um, anyway, anyway, but mostly, so they say like to teach an, a cat to high five and stuff, it's all like conditioning. Like they, they like mentally condition them to do it. Kind of like, I don't know if y'all remember, but there was a place in the office where like when Dwight was sitting there and Jim would come in and he would open his computer in the morning and it would go bling. And he said, Dwight, would you like an Altoid? And Dwight said, sure, thanks, Jim. And so the next day he opened it and it went bling. Altoid, Dwight? Sure, Jim. Third morning. Bling, and Jim said, Altoid, and Dwight just reached his hand out, said thanks. The next day, Jim opened his computer, went bling, 
Dwight just reached his hand out. Jim put an Altoid in it. And then the next day, he opened his computer. It went bling. And Jim didn't do anything. And Dwight just stretched his hand out. And Jim said, Dwight, why is your hand out? He said, I don't really know. But I have a terrible taste in my mouth, you know. So, but there's, um, so there's, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of animals involved. And, there, and so like in the Old Testament, if a person did a bad thing, you would have to get an animal like a sheep or a goat or sometimes other animals. And you'd have to take it to a certain place in Jerusalem in the temple or in the tabernacle. And, and, um, and then so because you had done something bad, and it's kind of like the animals kind of taking your place, you had to kill it in a particularly kind of gross way. And it wasn't to condition the animal, it was to condition the humans and let them think down through multi-generations that when you do bad things that God doesn't want you to do, it's, it's very serious and there, uh, somebody's gotta pay for it. It's serious and it's sad and it's messy. And you know, it's like you, um, the animals would never like volunteer to do that. Like the, like, um, you know, if like, you, go, you see your guy and he's just, you know, he's had a terrible day, maybe a big fight with his wife. And, you know, just your goat said, hey, let's turn this day around and turn that frown upside down. Let's go down to the thing and I'm, I'm ready for this. And, um, but there's a place in, so in, in Romans, in Leviticus chapter one, in Romans chapter 12, like Paul talks about offering just a, a living sacrifice. So that's a reference to there was there. There were a variety of different reasons why you a person would sacri- would have to kill like a goat or a sheep. But there, but in Leviticus chapter one, it really wasn't mostly about the fact that people had done something wrong. But it was a person's way of saying. So like this goat. Let's say this goat is me, and I am giving this goat um, like completely and totally uh, to God as a way of saying, let's say this goat is me. God, I give myself to you. Like I want my life to be completely and totally yours. And so like in Romans chapter 12, so Paul's saying, let's say you're the goat. Um, why don't you just jump on up there and do this? Like just jump on up on that altar and just give yourself like to God. One thing about Jesus is he, he, he had an, because he was king of kings and lord of everything, he, he could get animals to do things. Like he could just with a, like a, a, a command of his mind, like he could get like, you know, like 3,000 fish to like jump into a net or um, one time, well, when he was arrested, he had gotten, he had, he was waiting for a certain moment and he got all the birds in Jerusalem to be quiet. And when somebody said for the third time, he didn't even know Jesus, he said crow and a rooster crowed just right, right on time. Only in the gospel of Mark does it say when Jesus was out into the wilderness for 40 days, Mark said he was with wild animals. And in my mind, it's not like they were out there kind of growling and like scary, but I just think they were with them like lion. They were lions back then in those days. And bears and they just maybe just keeping them company and maybe sleeping close to them and keeping them warm at night, you know? So he could get animals to do things. If you were like a goat or a sheep and it was time to offer like that everything to God, could he get you to jump up there on the altar? Like in other words, basically what Paul is saying is 
Has Jesus gotten you to the place where you say in your heart, Jesus, I am like yours. I'm completely and totally yours. I give you my time. I, my time is yours. My body is yours. My money is yours. I give you the right to review and to approve every choice I make, every plan I have, every opinion I say. I care about pleasing you first. I care about pleasing you last. I care about pleasing you most. You are like, I, when I think, when I, the way I think about you, you're my master. I'm like the servant. I'm like your slave. Like the, the only thing I care about is like your words, like your teachings. I love them. I study them. I want to know them because there's no such thing in the New Testament as devotion to Jesus that doesn't include a corresponding devotion to his words or to his teachings. If a person says that they, you know, are devoted to Jesus, but they ignore his words or his teachings, usually they're following a Jesus that they're making up. But that, but, um, and a person said, this is what I, I just, all I care about is what you say and learning what you say and learning what you taught. And in different moments and different situations, through your words and through your teachings, I'm listening for your voice about what to do. Like, I, I am completely and totally yours. So Paul said, you know what? You ought to do that. Like, you ought to get to a place where you totally are saying that to him. Like, I am completely yours. I completely belong to you. Like, you completely and totally own me. And Paul said, it's just logical that you would do that. And you think, so logical based on what? And Paul would say, it's logical based on what I've been telling you like up to now. So lot, most of the time, like a lot of times in the letters that Paul wrote to people, like the first half would be, here's something you desperately need to know about Jesus and about yourself like that. And you can't really live without knowing this, so I'm gonna tell you some things that you really, really need to know. And then the second part of the letters would be, because you know this, this is the way you should be, and this is the way you should think, and this is the way you should talk. I mean, it's just it just makes sense. Like Ephesians chapter one, two, and three, this is what you need to know, four, five, and six. So this is how you should be, Colossians one and two. This is what you super need to know, Colossians three and four. And because you know that, now this is how you should live. One person said, if you knew what if you know the things you need to know, like if you know what it says in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, you kind of ought to be able to figure out 4, 5, and 6 for yourself. And so in Romans, he's like, it only makes sense that you give yourself completely and totally to Jesus. Like my life is completely and totally yours because of what I've been saying in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. If you get it, it just makes sense that you give everything you have, all of yourself, to him. So what had he been saying in chapters one, like up to, up to this point? What is the letter to the Romans all about? It is like the most, I don't, I mean, it's like the most awesome ever. So the letter to, that Paul wrote to the Romans, he wrote from another big city. He had, I think Paul had gotten to a point, like when he started to be a missionary, he kind of went to littler places. And I get the impression that as he went along, he got the idea that if you're going to share the message of Jesus, the best place to share it is in big cities. Because in big cities, people come from far away. They're a lot more open-minded. They're a lot, they're kind of freed from like family traditional ways of thinking and family pressures and they can think about new things. Did you know in Knox County there's 120 languages spoken? 
in Knox County. So, but, so he started to go, and so, but Rome was like the biggest city of all. It was like the most powerful city in all the world. And the thing about Rome was uh, it had a really big Christian community, but nobody really knew where, that, where they came from. Like when Paul wrote to the Philippians, it was like people that he had led to Jesus in Philippi and then kind of taught him stuff and put him in a community and left and wrote him letters back. And the letter that he wrote to the Thessalonians, it was the same way. And the letters that he wrote to the Galatians, the same way. But this big Christian community in Rome, nobody, had, nobody knows where it came from. Like he didn't start it. So some people have the theory that like about a month and a half after Jesus rose from the dead and kind of right after he had gone up into heaven, when, the, when his guys started to really share the message of Jesus, like especially when Peter did on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, there were like thousands and thousands and thousands of people who were there for the Passover from all over the world. There were people from Mesopotamia, Pontus and Pomphylia and Cappadocia and Egypt, Cyrene, and Greece, and Rome. And some people think that it might have been people that were there that day. They heard the message of Jesus. They believed in Jesus. They went back to Rome, and they started sharing it with people. And that's how that community grew, which is an amazing thing. The only thing is that when that kind of thing happens, um, and like the faith kind of grows into a big community that doesn't have like anybody really helping them getting good and grounded, sometimes it can get a little wonky. So Paul was, what he was basically saying is, I wanna come visit you all. I know some people there, so I'm gonna come visit you guys and I really wanna help you grow and I really wanna go to Spain and share Jesus there and I want y'all to help me do that. So, but anyway, hey, before I come there, I don't want y'all to get offended, but I wanna make sure that you guys, um, I wanna make sure that you have the basics down. I mean, I know you know this stuff. Like I'm gonna, I know you know the basics and I don't wanna hurt your feelings, but do you mind if I could just kind of explain it to you? Like the message that I explain everywhere, like my message, do you mind if I, just to make sure we're all on the same page, do you mind if I do that? because I'm going to do it anyway, but so here, here it comes. And that's why the letter to the Romans is so amazing. It's like Paul giving a very, a kind of a pretty full um, correspondence course on his basic message that he shared everywhere. Because he says in chapter one, I've got a message. It's like, I, so I want to share with you the gospel. Well, actually the word gospel is, um, it came to the English language through the German language. It, it, it came from the word gut and the word spiel. You know, like people say, don't give me your spiel, you know, but it's kind of a message, it's the gut spiel. It's like the good message, but actually the word he used is a word that means good news. It's like, it's not good advice, it's not good counsel, it's not good principles for living, it's not good Christian values, it's good news. News is something that happened. Something has happened, everybody, like something has happened in ancient history that if you open your heart to it, it'll change your present reality and your future destiny. So let me tell you like what happened, and I need to explain it to you. I, I, I remember when Mel Gibson made that movie, The Passion of the Christ, and I did not go see it, and I'm one of the few humans that I know that didn't see that movie, but 
it was because it was rated R for mature audiences, and I just had questions about my own maturity, but um, I just didn't, I would, you know, but one thing that he said was, it was all in Latin and Aramaic, and he said, he, and he wasn't even gonna put subtitles in it, because he said, it's not a message that needs words to understand it, and I was like, it absolutely needs words to understand it. Everybody that was there the first time, nobody understood what they were doing or what they were seeing, except for one person who was nailed beside Jesus, who would be dead before the day was over. So Paul said, okay, so let me explain it to you, what that was all about. So he starts in, and he said, before I get to the good news, I gotta tell you some really bad news. And so he said, from, ch from chapter one, verse 18, all the way through chapter three, verse 20, he said, I've got some bad news. The bad news is you super need this good news because like everybody's made a complete, until we've all done um, and thought and said a million things that are wrong and we're hopelessly guilty and we're completely and totally polluted and we can't pay for anything that we've done and we can't cleanse our own heart. We're just kind of done. It's, we're done, we, we're, you know, it's a complete and total mess. There's a place in verses eight, 19 and 20 of chapter three when he kind of gets to the end of this thing where he said, you know the only reason God gave, you the ten, gave us the 10 commandments was to show everybody, you can't do this y'all. No, I mean, nobody can do these. Nobody can, nobody can keep these. There's one that says you shall not commit adultery. I remember there was like a third grader and they were in Sunday school and they were talking about, and the teacher was teaching them the 10 commandments. And one kid said, what does adultery mean? And the other kid, Adultery, it's when you try to buy beer and you're not old enough, you know, but the, um, the, but the, um, but Jesus said, so adultery is something that people do. It, Jesus said it's also something that people think. Like if you, if you think about a person in a sexual way, he said it's exactly the same thing. And I remember one time, it was back, it was in Mobile, Alabama, I think it was at the courthouse, and they were gonna remove a monument of the Ten Commandments. So all these evangelicals go down there and they're gonna like protest this. And literally with picket signs from all over the country, picket signs and picket lines, and they're marching up and down. We believe in, in the Ten Commandments. We stand on the Ten Commandments. I'm like, Seriously, like, are you kidding me? This is gonna be your thing right here. How much you stand on the Ten Commandments? You know, there, there was a, I was just thinking like if a guy was walking down the line and with his picket sign, you know, and he turned around and, and did what today's contemporary youth culture calls check somebody out. You know, like then the Holy Spirit would say to his heart, but you need to like lay that sign down and slowly back away from it because like nobody, nobody does things like does this. We're all hopelessly guilty and completely polluted. We can't pay for what we've done. We can't cleanse our heart. It's a disaster. That's why the two most beautiful words in all of language are in chapter three, verse 21, where Paul said, but now, but now when we're done, we're hopeless, we're guilty, we're completely polluted, we can do nothing about it, but now, but now a righteousness from God has been made manifested or made available, being witnessed by the law of the prophets, a righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe, because there is no difference. And then he says in verses 23 and 24, for all have sinned. So these are like the greatest words you've ever heard like in your entire life. And I always feel like if, you, if a person's never ever like memorized a verse of the Bible, like Romans 3, 23 and 25, like you should do it today and never forget them. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a 
sacrifice of atonement, it really says propitiation, through faith in his blood. I remember in 1970, it was in late October, 1974, and uh, I had been trying to find Jesus. I wasn't 20 yet, I was, or I just turned 20. And I, was, I had been trying to find Jesus for 10 years. And my brother Bill had, and it had super changed his life. And he asked me to come stay with him out there. And he explained, and I'm like, why did it take so long to find someone who could explain this to me? But he said, he said, what, what this means is that when you believe in Jesus and trust in Jesus, you're justified. Not only are you forgiven for everything you've ever done, do, or will do, not only are you forgiven for everything you've done, in that moment, you're forgiven for everything you ever will do until I can tell you're dead. And I was like, really? It's more than that. He said, justified means you're declared or pronounced righteous. Like as, you're as righteous in the sight of God as Jesus himself. I'm like, how could that be? I remember when people started to, I started going to churches and stuff and people started to say, justification means when God sees you, he doesn't even see you, he sees Jesus. And I, and I, I knew that was an amazing, an amazing thing. But I didn't feel amazing enough. Like I, 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 there's, there's more to this than I'm understanding. I mean, like, how could it be? Like, it, it's, is it a magic trick? Like, did, that God would say, I'm righteous, and I'm, I'm suddenly righteous even though I know I'm not? Is it cooking the books? Did he wave a wand? I mean, so it, I started to study this for like a year. And Tina and I got married. I met her the next week, and then we got married in seven months, and she knew how hard I was trying to understand this. And I thought, so how could I feel like I was declared righteous or pronounced righteous? And then I realized that it had to do with that word in chapter, in verse 25, where he says that Jesus was a propitiation. And it means that Jesus was almighty God who became a human being. He became a poor Middle Eastern baby and he lived a beautiful life and he grew up, but he grew up primarily to pay for me, like to offer himself and pay for me, like that he would, that, um, It was like, so when he was arrested and spit on and slapped and punched, it should have been me. Like he was paying for what, what you know what I deserved? And then he was tortured and then he was stripped and then he was nailed. And that should have, have, been, have been me. He was paying, um, He was paying my debt, like, so, which that's like a super important concept in the New Testament, that so like, God, like God created me, and I, because he loved, because he, because of love, and I owed, I owed every breath to him, I owed every heartbeat to him, I've never given him one, like I had such a massive debt, and so like if, if somebody owes you money, like if somebody borrows, like can I borrow $1,300, I'll pay you on the 7th of next month, okay, on the 7th of next month, they, you know what, I don't really have it, can I have another month, okay, so you give them another month, on the 7th of the next month, uh, you know what, I don't really have it, pretty soon you realize I'm never going to see this money again, so what, I mean, I have one or two choices, I can make them pay in another way, which kind of means punish them, or I can just forgive the debt. But if I forgive the debt, I'm out $1,300. Like anytime you forgive a debt, you basically pay it yourself. If Almighty God was to forgive the debt that I owed him, he would have to come here and pay it himself, which is what he did. 
So in ways that I can't possibly understand when Jesus was dying for me, all of my guilt was mysteriously and miraculously transferred to him even though he had never done anything wrong. And he paid for all of it so that when I trusted him, all of his righteousness was mysteriously transferred to me even though I've never done anything 100% right and I paid for none of it. So, so I think, why? Why did he do that? And I was kind of stuck on that. Like, why did he do it? And then I understood what that word redemption means. So the word redemption, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, redemption means to buy something. He did it because he was buying me. When you buy something, it's because you want it. He did it because he wanted me. He did it because he wanted you. He accepts you because you... He wanted to have you. So, like, I don't believe that thing anymore that when Jesus, that justification means when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus. I don't think that's what justification means. That, that, it made me feel like what you're saying is, I'm so terrible, Jesus can't even look at me. And so, like, when I get to heaven, you know, God's going to go, oh, brother, I, I, I forgot. I forgot we included this one. Jesus is at my right. I tell you what, I'm going to look over here at Jesus for like seven, go, seven seconds. You got seven seconds to get here. I'm going to change my mind about you, you know. Justification means when Jesus looks at me, he sees me in the righteousness of Jesus, but it was you he wanted. The, um, you know, there's something, I think I've told y'all this before, but um, I feel like Paul, I know y'all know this, so I'm gonna tell you again. But there's so like, the, and this is something I kind of discovered a little bit myself. I'm not the first person to discover, but I kind of discovered it on my own. So like when it says in the New Testament that Jesus, that, that God forgives us our sins, he doesn't forgive you. He forgives your sins. So like you, you are the indirect, there's a, there's a way in Greek where you can, it's like in Latin and stuff, where you can identify whether a word is the direct object or indirect object by changing the word actually. And so in, in, in the New Testament, in every case, when it talks about forgiving our sins, forgiving us our sins, he forgives your sin. It's kind of like if you say, throw me the ball, you know, throw me the pass, like you're in the end zone, throw me the pass. You're not saying throw me. You're saying, throw me the pass. Before Theodore Roosevelt, they used to throw the person. Like they, they would actually, there were handles on guys' jerseys and they would throw them. And then he, and there were so many people in the hospital, he said, we got to change this game. So they got, well, let's throw the ball to the person and make the person the indirect object, not the direct object. So, but, but so it's like God forgives your sins for you. The word forgive is a word that basically means to let go or to send away. He sends your sins away. He lets them go because he's never going to let you go. He's never going to send you away. You're the one he wanted. Okay, so, I, so, so doesn't it just make sense that you would give yourself to God, to someone who accepts you that much, you know? So um, a person says, so I have a question. I have a question. At the end of chapter three, I got a question. So Paul said, okay, I've got another question ahead of yours, so I'm gonna answer that question. I'll get back to your question. So chapter four, he's answering a whole nother question. And in chapter five, he said, okay, now what's your question? My question is, why did he want me so bad? What does he want with me? And in chapter five, he said, okay, now we're at the beginning of this. Now we're at, now we're at the adventure of what it means to learn what the heart of God is like. 
Like because when you're justified and you're declared righteous, that's only one thing you get. You get lots of stuff. He said, you have access into this grace in which we stand, which means you can, now, now that we have, there's peace with God and everything, you can, okay, so he also says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, like we're going to go to heaven, but we're not there yet. So we still have tons of problems. So if you have a problem, you can go straight to almighty God, Lord of heaven and earth, and say, hey, I need some help. What? I need some help. Okay. I can do that. I can say to God, help me. Yes, you can say to God, I need help with this. I need help with that. I need help with this problem. I need help with this person. I need help in this situation. Will you help me? And he'll help you. And it's like, all you have to do is ask. Because when he declared you righteous, he declared you his. And he declared himself yours. And all you have to do is ask. There was a time when Lee and Potsy and I and Bill Reeser were in Panera Bread. And we were talking about the book of Romans. And there was a guy sitting beside us. He was an older guy. He's about my age now, you know, but he had white hair. He was pretty cool. He had like his shirt was on kind of unbuttoned with that kind of Tom Jones kind of way. And he had that Tom Jones button unbuttoned. He had a big gold chain and everything. And he was eating. And then he got up and he left. And he just left his stuff there. And he had a big hunk of that um, French bread they have. And he hadn't touched it. And Bill said, if I snag that, will you eat it? I said, yeah. And so Bill starts leaning over towards it. And then he starts reaching his house and he was almost ready to touch it. And the guy turned the corner. He was like, what? You leave your food for a second and people start to steal it? And Bill's like, we're sorry, we're sorry. We thought you were gone. We didn't think you were here. We thought you had left. And the guy said, my son is one of the managers here. I'm gonna call him and he called his son. He said, I left for a second. These guys are stealing their food. Will you bring them an entire loaf of that French bread? Sure, dad. So he went and gave us an entire loaf. The guy had the biggest <laughs> smile on his face and he winked and he said, all you had to do was ask. It's just like, and so like, it's just like with God, almighty God, all I got to do is ask. And Paul said, in some ways, in some ways, like you might not get it exactly at the right time, but he said, sometimes he said, we rejoice when we have problems like this because because problems, it's a word that means squeezings. We're kind of squeezed in a situation and I'm asking God to help me. And he said, and those kind of problems produce perseverance, which is a word that means tenacity. I'm going to hold on. I believe God loves. I believe God's taking care of me. I believe I can talk to him, even though he's making me wait. And he said, and perseverance produces proven character. And people say, oh, does that mean that God's changing, like trying to change me? A lot of scholars think that it's talking about God's character, like that God might make you wait, but he's going to show himself, show, show you something about yourself. So when I when in California, um, I went to this church, the first, a lot of people, like when they become Christians, they have to get over like all this stuff. The, the, the churches they went to, I went to two of the most beautiful churches in the world. One of them was in Palo Alto, California. There was a pastor named Ray Stedman. And the other was a historic Chinese church in Chinatown and they were the most beautiful Christians ever. But one of the pastors was a guy named uh, Dave Roper. The first person I ever heard teach out of the Bible was Dave Roper. In Mark chapter eight, and I understood everything he said. And I didn't know anything. But anyway, so, and then he stayed there for a long time and then he moved to Idaho. Uh, um, and so one time, he and his wife had been in Europe doing uh, like conferences and stuff. And they were in Frankfurt and they were gonna fly to Boston and then fly to Boise. And so they got on the plane at Frankfurt. There was a guy sitting beside his wife and he started to get agitated because he had been separated from his fiance and he wanted to sit with her and he started to get belligerent. And then a guy just stood up said, who was sitting by his fiance said, I'll trade with you, no problem. So this guy took that seat. And so 
Dave said he went, well, he heard Caroline talk, you know, kind of chatting with the guy, and the guy said he was from Los Gatos, and he said, well, we're from Los Altos, which was right by Palo Alto, and, uh, so, and then he went to sleep, and he woke up, and Carolyn, and Carolyn was explaining the gospel to this guy on his yellow legal pad, just making, and the guy was super listening, and he had lots of questions, you know, when they were out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and he was like, how did that happen, and the guy said, and Dave heard the guy said, you know what, you believe what my wife believes, and he said, really, where, where did your wife learn about Jesus? And he said, at Bible Study Fellowship. And she said, who's her Bible Study Fellowship leader? And he said, Nell King. And she said, Nell King is like my best friend. And then she realized that a few weeks before, Nell King had said, I need you to pray for this gal. She has just come to know Jesus, and her husband doesn't believe in him. And would you pray for him that there might be some way to share Jesus with him? And she said, I've been praying for you for the last seven weeks. You know, and so, okay, so I've got a question. So Jesus declares me righteous. Jesus declares me his. He declares me his what? And Paul said, okay, a couple of people have a question before you. So in chapter six, chapter seven, he answers three questions. Then let me get back to your question in chapter eight. He declares you his child. The reason he wanted you is he wanted a kid like you. And there's a place in your heart when you have these kind of problems and you've never really felt this before, there's a place in your heart that says, Daddy, I need you to be my daddy. That's the thing I knew the first day. I understood the gospel in October of 1974. I have a dad now. I knew it. I knew it was true. And there's a place in your heart that says, Daddy. And, and, and it means that you're learning to become, that, like the problems that you have, sometimes they're so great, you have to become like a little kid again. And I can't handle this. And I don't know what to do. And I'm in a situation I don't know how to get in. I feel like a little kid. Daddy, will you help me? In chapter, in, in verse 28 and 29, He says, so like all the different problems that you have, um, God kind of, I know it gets super confusing and who knows why this is happening, but God makes it work into a plan. And the plan is, in verse 29, is to make you like Jesus. I mean, God made you to be a unique person. Nobody could be you but you. There, I mean, there's no human being could be. who We've never been the person that God made us to be. But he said, that's what he's doing now. He's making you into the person he always intended you to be. He's making you like Jesus, but the you version of Jesus. It's kind of like when the same power goes into all of us, it makes all of us different. It's kind of like in those cathedrals, like in the Cathedral of Milan, when you go in there at night, there's these massive stained glass windows. And you know they're beautiful and you know they're massive, but you can't see anything because it's dark. But if you go in the morning and the same light comes through this window, and you're like, oh, there's St. George fighting the dragon. Oh, there's St. Ambrose healing the sick. Oh, there's St. Francis feeding the poor. Like the same light, and they're all so different. He's making you into like Jesus, but the you version of Jesus. But the way he does that is he lets you be a kid again. 
and you get to be a kid again, and you get to be the kid that he always intended you to be, but you never have been because you were just on your own the whole time. And you're like, can I be like myself but a kid when I depend on you to help me and everything and to get me out of trouble for everything? And, and I, it made me think about Jesus as a kid. There was a time in, chapter, in, in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus was 12 and his parents had gone to Jerusalem for a, for the, a thing. And, the, and, and it was, they were like with all their family and stuff and they left him there. She thought he, he was with him. Joseph thought he was with her. Da, da, da. A day and a half later, Jesus with you? No, what? Not with me. We left him. And so they go back and find Jesus in the temple. And he wasn't, they were freaked. He wasn't a bit freaked out. He was just fearless. And, uh, and he was so focused. And he said, didn't you know I'd be about my father's things? And he was just asking questions to the people there. He was just full of questions, fearless, focused, and full of questions, full of curiosity and growing. And I want to be a kid like him. I want to be a kid. I get to be a kid depending on my dad. And it makes me fearless makes me love him, it makes me focused, it gives me lots of questions, I'm full of curiosity. I get to be the kid I never was. How do you not, how do you not give everything you are to a God like that? Who lets you be a kid again? The kid you never were, but now you get to be. You know, there was a, one of the people I love the most is a guy named Rich Mullins. He died 20, Rich Mullins, <laughs> this is super long. I'm so sorry. Next week is gonna be super short. But so Rich Mullins, Rich Mullins was one of the most amazing people ever. And, uh, but he died 25 years ago. But he grew up, he was a Christian songwriter, but he, he grew up on a farm outside of Bloomington, Indiana. And his dad, his dad used to say, I've got two sons and I've got two daughters and I got a piano player. But, you know, he was a sensitive kid. He was an artist. He just was always sensitive. And he had a sister named Debbie and she said, I was kind of a tomboy. Like I was, I was the boy my dad always wanted to. I loved working on the farm. And I thought my brother, when he was eight and I was 12, I thought he was just, he was too weak. And I just had to toughen him up. And I used to, I used to kind of push him. And she said, I remember one day I pushed him. I said, I said, fight me, fight me. I want you to fight back. You got to learn to fight back. And she said, I knocked him on the ground. And I put my knees on his shoulders and I said, fight back. And he looked at me and said, Debbie, Jesus doesn't want us to fight. Lord Jesus, let us be kids of you. You're inviting us to be kids again and you to be our dad. What a beautiful life. What a beautiful father. What a beautiful heart. It just makes sense to give it all to you. What can wash away my can make me whole
This is all my